Doug Storm. Welcome to a special 90-minute interchange. Today's show is Wells Before Glass, Intimacy and Propaganda in Radio. Our music tonight throughout will be the work of Hector Villalobos, a Brazilian composer born in 1887. Villalobos has been described as the single most significant creative figure in 20th century Brazilian art music. His prominence here should become clear later in the program. If not, perhaps you'll just enjoy it. This is Chari Number no. 1, performed by David Russell. The Wells in our title is Orson Wells, and the glass is Ira Glass. That Wells is ahead of us, and hence ahead of glass, in radio first and then film, is one facet of our program. Orson Welles was an innovator in the World War II era radio feature, a genre of radio mixing fact and drama that's largely forgotten and unacknowledged, a forerunner of the radio documentary as we now know it. Think This American Life and Radiolab or WFHB's own Books Unbound under the direction of Cynthia Wolfe. We'll discuss what the radio feature was, why it arose, and what its role was in World War II and how it relates to Welles' signature style and concerns. And it's the role of radio propaganda in World War II that is another facet of our program. We'll feature selections from two of Wells' radio series, Hello Americans and Ceiling Unlimited. These programs were official, government-sponsored propaganda. The intimate voice of radio is an extremely powerful weapon in the war of ideas. With me tonight in the studio for this special interchange are Michelle Hilmes and James Gilmore. Michelle is in Bloomington to discover, excuse me, to deliver the Naramore Lecture, re- named after James Naramore, Emeritus Chancellor's Professor of English, Comparative Literature, and the Media School at Indiana University. Author of perhaps the best critical book on the films of Orson Welles, The Magic World of Orson Welles. Michelle Helms is Professor of Media and Cultural Studies in the Department of Communication Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her work focuses on media history and historiography, particularly in the areas of transnational media and sound studies. Her visit to, and lecture are sponsored by the Cinema and Media Studies Unit in the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington. James Gilmore is a PhD candidate in the Department of Communication and Culture at Indiana University. He's currently writing a dissertation entitled Knowing the Everyday, Wearable Technologies, Experience, and Informational Excess. His work's been published in journals such as television and news media, and New Media and Society. He's currently finishing and co-editing another collection of essays tentatively titled The Unknown Orson Welles, which hopefully will be published next year. Welcome, Michelle and James. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, So we are going to listen to one full episode of Hello Americans. It's the last episode of the series called Bolivar's Idea which aired on January 31st, 1943, and then a segment from an episode of Ceiling Unlimited from January 25, January 25th, 1943, that features Wells reading a very short story by John Steinbeck called With Your Wings, which I understand possibly was written specifically for broadcast as propaganda. We'll bring, uh, into, we'll bring that into this as we listen, excuse me, we'll break into this as we listen and we'll discuss uh, Wells' content and style. First though, Michelle, I began suggesting Wells precedes 
the current production boom of radio documentaries. Perhaps you can put some flesh on that before we turn to Hello Americans. Sure. Well, it's fascinating that there was this tradition of work being done by Wells, amongst others. He was not the person to invent the form of the feature, but he certainly, he added a lot to it, and his signature style, you know, comes through so clearly, as we'll hear. But uh, this was a type of what you might call today, today we would call them radio documentaries. But in fact, for reasons that we might discuss later that has to do with sound as a medium, um, the blending of fact and fiction in a form like the radio feature became uh, a tradition that radio developed. It was a radio-only tradition. And um, it's interesting that people like Ira Glass, although they're working in the tradition of Wells, that history has been so forgotten that they don't even, I think, know it themselves. Mm. So we'll maybe explore that a little more. Great. Um, so there's history, though, uh, behind this that we probably should be aware of as well. Um, so 1943, we're in the middle of World War II, and you mentioned that these are um, these are propaganda programs, a series of propaganda produced to that purpose. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. And radio really became a dominant medium in World War II, and it was partly because it was covering the war, but also because it was taken up by the government, not only our government, but the British government and all the allies and, and Axis powers, too, um, to help wage war, to uh, tell people about the war, to rally their morale, to get them to enlist, all kinds of things. And at this point in 1943, there, this had been going on in the U.S. for a couple of years since we'd gotten into the war in late 1941. Um, and Wells was approached by Nelson Rockefeller, who was the head of the um, Office of uh, Pan-American, Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, excuse me, um, to do this program, Hello America. And he was drawing upon, he'd been down in Brazil for the previous year working on his never completely finished uh, but now rediscovered film, It's All True which interestingly was also a blend of fact and fiction. He was gonna use fictional methods, blend them with some factual uh, sound sequences and ideas. So this really grew out of that. In fact, he said, you know, I can use the material that I gathered in South America to make this radio series. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, this, uh, this is again 43, Citizen Kane is, um, uh, comes out in 1941. Ambersons is immediately after that as well, I believe. So he's he's in that sort of post-Ambersons place where he's down in Brazil uh, doing work for the government, and little does he know that his film career is going in the tank while he's doing it, uh, but having a good time. Uh, <laughs> Very good time. <laughs> too good a time. Apparently too good a time. So, um, But he's young at this point, right? So uh, 43, he's what, mm. around 28 years old, again, uh, already uh, having made possibly the greatest film in at least American film history. Um, and he's discovering things about Brazil in particular, about government in Brazil, about poverty in Brazil as well. And that's a part of what gets him in trouble also in some sense, right? What he films and sends back is not... It's not the proper propaganda, maybe. Is that, is that, am I characterizing that properly? Well, and not what they were looking for and, you know, over the top and maybe a mixing fact and fiction a little too freely. <laughs> uh, so I think he was under some tighter controls in Hello Americans. Hmm. But if the content was tightly controlled, as we will see, the style was not. And that's where Wells comes in as an innovator in radio feature because, you know, it's not only his magnificent voice, which we all know and is immediately apparent, but the way that he can create things that we could, you know, you try to imagine doing it with a gazillion dollar film budget and you just couldn't. It can only be done in sound. 
So he really goes to town in this episode. Well, there is that intimacy, too, the, the fact that he's talking right to you, right? He's and that's story. his intimate voice, and mm-hmm. nobody was better at that than Wells was. Well, let's go ahead and, and listen to... Now, again, we're going to break these clips into, into parts uh, uh, for the Hello American show. Again, this was Bolivar's idea. It's the final uh, segment or final show of the series. And again, it ran in January 31 of 1943. Uh, so again, this is Bolivar's idea. There's a first segment, and then we'll we'll stop and talk about it. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater in a series of programs about the other Americas. Hello, Americans. This is Orson Welles. A year ago, I stood before this same CBS microphone in this same studio and said goodbye to you for the Mercury. Here was our farewell. It is important for the peoples of this hemisphere to get better acquainted, and the Mercury has been given the job of helping out with the introductions. Tomorrow, we leave for South America. That was a year ago. Since then, we've made motion pictures in Brazil and Mexico and visited all the American republics, gathering material and writing the scripts for these broadcasts. Now it's time to say goodbye again. We're going on with the job. The Mercury is still working for the coordinator of inter-American affairs. Movies and plays and later we hope more radio going to go on trying to help out with the introductions. Senor and Senora America, we want you to shake hands with Mr. and Mrs. America. Stories and music, poetry and jokes, all the mediums we can work in, all the languages we know, are obediently yours in the service of a big idea called Pan-Americanism. Big idea and also a big word. I wish it weren't. It ought to be just as easy to say Pan-Americanism as it is to understand it. My own contact with Pan-Americanism began with a delicately filigreed souvenir spoon from the Pan-American Exposition, clearly labeled Sterling Silver. At the inquisitive age of seven, I found this tiny spoon among my grandmother's jealously guarded treasures in the old glass reliquary in the living room along with a dance program which, curiously enough, did not have my grandfather's name in it and the prescription for an asthma remedy. Orson, are you meddling in my things again? Even as a child, I recognized the merit of diversion as a method of defense. So I promptly asked, what does Pan-Americanism mean, Grandma? So far as I'd been able to figure it out from the engraved map in the bowl of the spoon, the narrow strip of Central America must be the handle to some fantastic two-headed frying pan. Your grandfather's idea of a wedding anniversary was always to traipse off to an exposition. Patiently or stubbornly, perhaps, I asked again, but what does Pan-American mean, Grandma? She seemed puzzled as she looked at me through the upper half of her glasses. Uh... Pan-American means uh, the Monroe Doctrine or something. Something to do with us and those people down Panama way, I suppose. 
They showed off a display of how they make blankets down there. And as nice colors as I ever did see. A little incomplete, perhaps, but somehow it made me feel friendly toward those people down Panama Way. Their bright colors. I learned only a little more of our southern neighbors in school. Brazil. The area of Brazil is 3,285,316 square miles. The Republic has a population of 40,272,650. In school, I learned that the people to the south of us included many races. Portuguese, Italian, Spanish, German, Russian, Negro, Indian, and some Irish. Very much like our own classroom. Miranda? Present. Vanessie? You present. Garcia? Present. O'Leary? Present. Smith? Present. Wells? Uh, present and so forth. We will all face the flag. I pledge allegiance, allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One, one nation, indivisible, with, with liberty, liberty and, and justice, justice for all. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show tonight is The Intimacy and Propaganda of Radio. You're listening to Bolivar's Idea, the final episode of Hello Americans, Orson Welles' radio series, which was sponsored by the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, headed up by Nelson Rockefeller. It was later, much later, that I learned about the tango. I went to the movies, read books. I was told of dark-eyed senioritas, of pampas moons, gauchos, and wild palomino ponies. Then I learned the rumba. I heard about Latin lovers and uh, the barbarous jungles, fiestas, bandits, revolutions, and tamales, hot tamales. Somehow the feeling of friendliness I'd known as a child escaped me. I was a gringo, and my friends from down Panama Way were Latins. A gulf wider and deeper than the Rio Grande separated me from my neighbors, and them from me. If I can only begin to tell you tonight how shallow and narrow that gulf really is. I will have accomplished what it took me a journey through our entire hemisphere to realize. Como vai você, José? Então, como vai passando sua senhora e crianças? O que é que você pensa a respeito das últimas notícias enviadas de Casa Blanca, hein? You know what that means? It means hello, Joe. What do you know? How's the wife and kids? And what do you think of the news from Casa Blanca? Tu sabes, chiquito, que há uma guerra e tenho que lutar. Espere-me. That's the way a Mexican boy says, Listen, sweetheart, I gotta enlist. You understand. Wait for me. That was a dark-eyed senorita he was talking to, and that other was your Latin lover. It's the sameness I'm talking about now. Sameness in spite of difference. Different sounds to the words. But the same idea. Different colors, but the same spirit. Different churches, but the same faith. Different liquor, but the same hangover. Different jokes, but the same laughter. Different nations, the same humanity. 
Thank God for the differences, because it's out of those differences that culture grows, and grows big in all directions at once. Thank God for the southern drawl and the Yankee twang. Thank God for samba and swing, for baseball and bullfights, for the poets and the painters, for Mexico's Orozco, for Portinari of Brazil, Queiroz of Argentina. Thank God for Walt Disney and Cantinflas, El Gran Otello, Carmen Miranda. Thank God for Chavez and Vila Lobos and a thousand unknown troubadours who improvise the people's songs. Thank God for Mark Twain and Mickey Rooney and all the others, living and dead, whose different voices are heard in our hemisphere, voices whose eternal sameness is contained in the tremendous proposition that all men are created equal. Again, that was Orson Welles. Uh, that's a segment from Bolivar's Idea, which was first broadcast in January of 1943. Uh, that's episode 12 of his series, Hello Americans, where I guess we're calling it propaganda. It's uh, one of those things we, well, it is, I suppose. We have to be sure of that. Um, it's, um, something we're going to discuss right now that's pretty interesting opening, right? Uh, Wells is setting the stage. Hello, Americans. Uh, this is the other America. I like that he starts out with Granny. Uh, sets the stage for who who <coughs> Granny, uh, or what Granny thinks, right? What Grandma thinks. They're, they're uh, the... Um, I guess the generational understanding of things, but also the ignorance of you know certain things. So, James, you want to respond at all to to it? Yeah, what we really hear in the first part of this program here is Wells engaging with what we might call the pedagogic or the kind of the educative function of a lot of his radio addresses. Right, Wells was really invested in progressive politics and in this idea of all people being created equal and being treated equally. And this was something that he was kind of expanding and developing throughout this trip to Brazil. You know, he really went off schedule in a lot of different ways and for a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons was because he was becoming aware of the various uh, class divides in Brazil. And he wanted to go to places that RKO and the office didn't necessarily want him to go to and record these images. And RKO we, is the movie production. The, the movie production company mm-hmm. um, that he, uh, he and his company were contracted under, and they were helping to finance the trip uh, along with the government offices. Uh, so what we really hear uh, in this opening is him not only kind of putting forth his progressive politics, his ideas of equality, but also, you know, the exchange of granny to young Orson is doing it in kind of this more simplified, educative, sit down and let me tell you what this complex word, (laughs) Pan-Americanism, actually means. Something to do with Pan-America, or Panama, she says. Right. right. Well, there's uh, there's uh, many interesting things in there. Obviously, I, I do like there's the uh, as you say the educative moment there with Grandma, of course, miseducating young Orson, and then as well we get the school uh, uh, example uh, where we get Brazil by rote, right, by just reciting the the uh, minerals and land and whatnot. And this is probably what many of us understand from our elementary education, maybe even more than that of of how we understand things. And the pledge, of course, too, is a, a kind of a propaganda that we, we get in school also. So we're kind of unpacking all parts of things here, right? And you notice that it didn't have under God in it. That oh, didn't come didn't until that. after the mm-hmm. war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's true. I didn't. What, what was that? Fifty-six. You know, I'm, I'm not sure, but it was late forties, early fifties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting too. So Pan Americas, Pan Americanism becomes our our theme, right? So the Bolivar's idea and Pan America, Pan Americanism will get into as as the show expands. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the the method there or the style, right? Uh, Michelle, go ahead if you don't mind. Well, what's unique, I think, about Wells' contribution in shows like this is that uh, there's basically two kinds of style that develop in the feature, uh, and, and in radio generally, and uh, there's a great book by a guy named Neil Verma uh, who talks about this. It's the theater of the mind. Um, he says there's an intimate style where you have somebody close to your ear, the narrator leading you through a drama, the person who explains what's going on, where we are, and all those kinds of doing it sonically in a way that, you know, you can't see what's happening, so the intimate narrator lets us know. But then there's what he calls the kaleidosonic style, which is which uses sound's ability to jump over barriers, to go anywhere it wants to, to change scenes, to make dramatic scenes. We've just seen a little bit of that so far when we jumped from Wells, the intimate narrator, to his granny in Wisconsin, and then back out to the classroom, and then we go to to some uh, Spanish lessons and you know other language lessons in some unspecified space. We've just only seen a little bit of that kaleidosonic style, and that is going to increase dramatically as we go through this program. What about the use of music so far? Anyone? No. Nothing well, well, I sh- yes, I mean, <laughs> he's certainly, I mean, and music was an integral part of the radio feature. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was built into it, 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 that was one of the primary ingredients of radio, so usually the radio feature would draw heavily on music, and, you know, here Wells is using something that is, you know, relates directly to his theme, and he's going to bring it in and out and use all kinds of uh, other music, too, mm-hmm. that's composed as really almost more of a special effect for mm-hmm. the... Like okay. my choice, choice to use Villa Lobos for the the radio show See, today. You're right? doing it too. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing we're, my best. Here. We're in a radio feature here. Well, that's right. It's not a. It's not. A, I'm not mixing facts and fiction. Well, not yet. I haven't. I haven't <laughs> we haven't gotten yet. to that part. I haven't told stories yet. <laughs> uh, I, I did point uh, this out to my my child who was studying English. Uh, uh, he's a, has that for us, uh, his trimester, and they've been talking about parallelism. And there's a beautiful example of parallelism in here, right? We're saying about, you know, thank God and, um, you know, different sorts of words, but the same meanings, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. different sorts of churches, but the same faith. It's a, it's a wonderful job. Now, uh, Wells scripted both of these? Did he script most of these programs? He did write most of them, not all of them. He, uh, as usual, he had a heavy hand in creating it. But actually, Arthur Miller scripted some mm. of these um, oh, wow. uh, programs and other other writers, too. A, a closet commie, Arthur Miller, if I, if I may put it that way. And right? a closet radio person, right, too. Right, he did quite right. a bit of radio. Right. And these were his Mercury players. I don't know if mm-hmm. we mentioned that yet, no, but he uh-uh. was using his Mercury players in these. Yeah, so he had formed his theater group, the Mercury uh, Theater, and then they'd taken as many as he could out to Hollywood as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to be to, to do Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. and they had the Mercury Theater on the air, which was, of course, his signature program on oh, okay. CBS. Wells made a lot of money in radio. Well, he he did. He spent a lot of <laughs> where it, too, it went. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. hard to say. Right, right. Okay, uh, let's let's go ahead and listen to another clip before our break. The very foundation of peace on earth is understanding between men. Strong magic, acknowledging no time and space. The understanding that comes with knowledge is a perfect time machine. You can twist the dial of history and listen in wherever you like. For instance, let's say we want to tune in on the city of Washington, D.C., the year 1816. Honor to be heard. Will the senator yield to the gentleman of Kentucky? John Randolph has been ridiculing a junior senator by the name of Henry Clay. 
who spoke for a diplomatic mission to South America. Mr. Clay's enthusiasm is a fervor recently acquired in Europe, a spirit which is out of place in the United States of America. The differences between the American nations are too great, socially, economically, and politically. The holdouts say those same things today. But the differences they talk about are just the ones you find in any of our own large cities. Well, people seem to get along all right. Any New York subway car is an international express. No one's really killed in the rush. Pan-Americanism is an unnatural movement. Mr. President. I recognize Senator Sharp of Kentucky. Mr. President, I wonder how many colleagues can be the spectators of a struggle for liberty and independence by any portion of the human family and feel indifferent of the result. Will the senator yield? <clears throat> the senator will gladly yield to Henry Clay. Thank you, Mr. Shaw. Mr. President, it was the doctrine of kings that man was too ignorant to govern himself. It was the doctrine of kings that man was too ignorant to govern himself. Bolivar speaking. Simon Bolivar in South America, the liberator. He stands framed against the clean, cold sky as he reads to his men. It was the doctrine of kings that man was too ignorant to govern himself. I maintain that an oppressed people are authorized whenever they can to rise and break their fetters. Those are the words I bring you from a senator of the United States Congress, Henry Clay. The wind blew across the mountains with the sound of Spanish cannon and snapped the black streamer which flew from Bolivar's lance. The men shifted their weight, watching the emblem on the streamer, a skull and bones, with the words of Patrick Henry, liberty or death. My friends, these words from our neighbor to the north give final assurance that we do not fight in vain. America, already I see it serve as a bond as center, as emporium to the human family. May God grant that we may install a Congress here to study the high interest of peace and war with the other nations of the world. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show tonight is The Intimacy and Propaganda of Radio. You're listening to Bolivar's Idea, the final episode of Hello Americans, Orson Welles' radio series, which was sponsored by the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, headed up by Nelson Rockefeller. The roots of Pan-Americanism lie buried with Bolivar deep in the rich, fertile soil he loved and freed. Let's turn the dial of history again past the failure of Bolivar's assembly at Panama, 1826, past the narrow national errors and misinterpretations of the Monroe Doctrine, let's tune in on the most spectacular year, 1889, Washington, D.C. I call to order the first Pan-American Conference. The scope and objective of this conference is consultative and rudimentary only. The conference will be wholly without power to... And so it began, this Pan-American partnership, weak, uncertain a newborn infant. And across the sea in Austria, in the same year of our Lord, 1889. 
Fine boy, Liebchen, a fine boy. Look how he holds his head up already. He'll make his mark, this boy will. You'll be proud to have delivered this child here, Doctor. Well, I find it better to disclaim any credit, good or bad, for the human beings I bring into the world, Herr Schickelgruber. <laughs> The birth date of two infants who were to grow into mortal enemies, Pan-Americanism and Adolf Hitler, Nate Schickelgruber. History indulges such contradictions. Take, for example, another year, 1933. Now we're in a small clay hut somewhere in South America. Jose tries to tune his new radio while his wife prepares food against the return of their son, who uh, helps build radios in the new radio factory. For such a price, it's a fine new vest. Listening to the inaugural address of the 32nd President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In the field of world policy, I would dedicate this nation to the policy of the good neighbor. Good evening, Father. Be quiet, Father. The neighbor who resolutely respects himself, and because he does so, respects the rights of others. The neighbor who respects his obligations and respects the sanctity of his agreement in and with a world of neighbors. And in answer to the public of the Jew, Franklin Rosenfeld, I quote the words of Germany's new leader. Whoever would really wish from his heart for the victory of the pacifist conception of this world must devote himself by every means to the conquest of the world by the Germans. Warden, there is something strange about this radio. Oh, no, they're all like that. Uh, Senor Schmidt at the factory told us it's, uh, it's because we're closer to Germany. Don't worry, Juan has learned. Today he works in another factory and he's a member of the Latin American Confederation of Workers. I'd like you to hear what Vincente Lombardo Toledano, the head of the Confederation, told me in Mexico. We have joined the United States and the other people fighting in the Orient and in Europe against Hitler and accomplices. There can be only two attitudes, against Hitler or in favor of Hitler. It is absurd to speak of neutrality because the neutral is but an ambushed fascist, cynical and cowardly. Mrs. Doug Storm on Interchange. We've been listening to Orson Welles, uh, his Hello Americans broadcast from the uh, late 40s and into 43, 1943. That, uh, this has been Bolivar's idea we're listening to. Uh, that, uh, uh, that segment we just l- listened to is chock full of so much stuff, it's hard to believe, but we'll have to take a break before we can get to it. Again, this is Doug Storm, and our music for the break is, is another by Brazilian composer Hector Villalobos. This is Valsa Choro, performed by Pepe Romero. 
Uh, our show is Wells Before Glass, Intimacy and Propaganda on the radio. My guests, Michelle Helms and James Gilmore. Uh, more Wells Before Glass when Interchange returns on WFHB. is 6.03. This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville, Community Radio for South Central Indiana, online at wfhb.org. The current temperature is 52 degrees. Tonight expected low of 39 degrees under partly cloudy skies, no rain forecast, however. Tomorrow, a high of 60 degrees under sunny skies, a low of 40 Thursday, continuing warm, 64 degrees for a high, a little cooler overnight of 33 degrees, with a 33% chance of precipitation. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976, serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe is located in downtown Bloomington. More information is available online at the-uptown.com. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Welcome back. With me in the studio are Michelle Helms and James Gilmore. We're discussing wartime propaganda of Orson Welles, delivered through his radio documentaries, Hello, Americans, and Ceiling Unlimited. Uh, Michelle, you'll correct me. It's not necessarily a documentary. I know that I probably need to clarify that. Go ahead and clarify. It's certainly a term we use today, but it was a radio feature, and it combined a little bit of drama, a little bit of documentary. A little bit of storytelling. Yep. Yeah. And what we just heard before the break uh, was uh, a part of Wells's Bolivar's Idea, an episode in Hello Americans, which was a series of episodes that were intended to be propaganda that was sponsored by the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, headed by Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, so that that last segment jumped all over the place. Uh, uh, and Michelle, you used the word before, kaleidoscopic or something like that. Kaleidosonic. Kaleidosonic. Obviously, we're not seeing, we're hearing. Uh, but we we are, we are being sort of led to see with the sounds, right? That's part of what radio does, huh? That's right. And it can, again, you know, try uh, making that kind of a montage in cinema. You could, but sound can do it so much more easily. Mm-hmm. And uh, as somebody famously said about radio, the pictures are better. <laughs> so uh, going on from there, and also I wanted to point out, you know, uh, if you thought your radio had suddenly developed <laughs> tons of static during that uh, um, the Herr Schickelgruber uh, scene, 
It was uh, Wells using radio sound effects that a shortwave broadcast would actually sound like, and he knew because he'd done a lot of shortwave broadcasting and listened to it, um, to, for effect, you know, to mm-hmm. make us feel that we're in the scene, to really create that scene in our imagination. Well, we get to Bolivar there. This, this, uh, this episode is called Bolivar's Idea, and the idea was that when you're oppressed, I suppose it's the idea, when you're a, a people that's oppressed, you have a right to kick off those shackles, those fetters. And this is Bolivar quoting Henry Clay uh, at the same time. So this is an interesting montage itself, or a, uh, a uh, liber- the great liberator, uh, Bolivar, who is often termed the George Washington of uh, Venezuela or South America or something like that. So we have uh, sort of a, a mixing of, of how, uh, I guess, our, our, pl- our politics and our, our, um, our understanding of what it means to become a country, become free, become a, a self-governing people here as well. So um, anybody want to take on Bolivar? Well, I'm no expert, and I, you know, I'm usually talking about radio, but I will just say that you know these br- the bringing together of the Latin American and North American traditions in democracy was a really an important point here, and um, it's interesting that you know this program was being broadcast not only over the U.S. airwaves but also on La Cadena de los Sudamericanos. I think oh. I'm getting that slightly wrong. The shortwave network in South America. Hmm. Now it was being broadcast in English, um, certainly speaking to an elite down there, but nonetheless it was literally pulling it all together and putting, mm. putting us all in the same space. Well, we have a... a did you, go ahead, James. Well, it doesn't surprise me that Wells is drawing on this because he's someone who really enjoys juxtaposition mm-hmm. in everything that he does. He enjoys putting things together to, to kind of create an argument out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can see this in his style, the way that we've already heard in this radio broadcast, him putting uh, different, you know, the FDR speech and mm-hmm. the Hitler speech, putting them next to each other. Uh, we heard it in uh, the first part of the broadcast when he was putting the classroom and his grandmother as different spaces of teaching mm-hmm. and instructing. And we see it also in his films, too. He loves putting different sorts of things next to each other and mm-hmm. seeing what they look like. Well, it's a good point. And, and uh, pointing out, the, the as again, as you did earlier, with the educative idea here, putting uh, Hitler and FDR in the same space, slotting them into the same time frames as well, born, uh, pan- as pan-Africanism as an idea, and Hitler born at the same time, uh, an idea that is... An, <clears throat> excuse me, diametrically opposed to pan, uh, I said, I think I said pan-Africanism. Uh, did. We did a show with du- uh, Du Bois <laughs> not too long ago, so uh, pan-Americanism and, uh, you know, the, the Hitler um, and uh, the idea of one one pure race uh, uh, juxtaposed here as well as also, uh, as you say, educative. But is it propaganda? This is a question that we want to get to. What is propaganda here? Uh, uh, James, I'll let you uh, uh, start on that. Sure. I mean, we were talking during the break about how propaganda has a very kind of dirty meaning to us now. It's it's a word that really implies manipulation, being lied to. And the word, you know, if you, if you take it back through its history, comes out of uh, religion, right? It's the idea of propagating the faith, propagating one's commitment to something. So religious leaders were expected to, you know, in, enforce propaganda so that their you know, congregations would propagate the faith mm-hmm. uh, and you know over time that's kind of that the idea of that has become a bit manipulated but for wells you know this is almost kind of a pure enterprise because he does see the need to use words and ideas and techniques and styles to combat fascism and mm-hmm. to try and bring people together to propagate these sort of politics to which he uh, and the united states are committed 
Right. So you have uh, his um, uh, either Hispanic, Latin American uh, speaker there say the neutral is the ambushed fascist. Well, I like that quite a bit. <laughs> so, uh, But you can't. You got to take sides here, right? That's mm-hmm. what Wells is saying. And we should point out, too, I mean, he was not getting paid for this. Mm. He was doing this as purely a labor of, you know, committed effort for the war. Again, that anti-fascist, strongly felt anti-fascist sentiment that James has talked about. And this is something that did not go away for Wells. If you look in his immediate post-war work and then even decades later, he is abhorring fascism wherever he sees it. And he is very quick to decry it. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, go ahead, Michelle. One fun fact? Sure, yeah. uh, About the word propaganda. Do you Mm -hmm. want to know the very first shortwave radio station, shortwave being the means that can allow radio to communicate over very long distances all the way across the world, the very first shortwave radio station was installed, in fact, at the Vatican hmm. for propagating the faith by no, no other person than Guglielmo Marconi himself. Marconi, nice. Yeah. Wow, that is a good fun so, fact. there you go. I appreciate that. Uh, now, uh, uh, before we get back to the show, uh, Michelle, I think in your uh, your talk tomorrow, you talk about the that this was this particular series, Hello Americans, originally titled First Person Singular, or was it some other show of Wells? He the actual the first person singular was the title that Wells wanted for what became Mercury Theater on the Air. Okay. He saw that program, which was basically, as you know, you know, adapting novels and and some original scripts, but mostly adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, and dr- dramatic adaptations. Dracula and, yes, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and War of the Worlds, mm-hmm, you know, famously, mm-hmm. and all of those. Um, he wanted to call it first-person singular because he really, this relates to something that I think will come up later, storytelling. Mm-hmm. He really wanted to be a radio storyteller and to tell mm-hmm. those stories on the air. And so that's why he chose that. But it also is a, a good way to lead us into this particular style mm-hmm. of documentary storytelling with which we are so familiar today. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, let's go ahead. Uh, we've got another segment here of uh, Bolivar's idea from the Wells program, Hello Americans. Today, the peoples of two great continents are fighting shoulder to shoulder. 21 nations of the Americas marching to the same battle hymn. And we didn't come together by a strange coincidence. And it wasn't just luck, and it wasn't an accident. We men and women of the Americas came together out of a common heritage, a tradition planted a hundred years deep. We were born out of revolution, all 21 of us. And we cut our teeth on a declaration of independence. Today we're still fighting the same fight. Good neighbors thrown together to protect their homes, that's the picture. People, just plain people. Plenty of personal problems going their own way, never getting to know their neighbors except for a good morning and a nice day, isn't it? Lots of us never knew that man who's the air raid warden till he dropped in to look over the house one evening about a year ago. And it's the same way with nations. Friendly, know each other's names. That's about all. Then comes the crisis. A fire, an air raid alert over a single night acquaintances become friends neighbors become allies and comrades in arms sometimes it doesn't take a crisis i remember in mexico seeing a young girl with a group of tourists in the united states she was so carried away by a passion for flowers that she found herself without enough centavos to pay for the orchids gardenias and carnations she'd selected I was asked to interpret, and it was only after I'd pushed through the group of tourists that I saw the face of the little flower girl. She smiled such a smile as I will never forget. 
It was as though she had been confronted with a miracle. I found she understood the situation. Si le gustan guaridas, niña. Literally translated, the young lady says, if you like them, keep them, little one. But she can't afford. The gringa tried to give the flowers back, but the Indian girl would have no part of it. She was genuinely delighted to find the gringa had a heart like herself. And that she loved her flowers. Flowers of Mexico. Here, ask her to take this scarf. But before I could speak, the Indian girl had refused. No, no, niña. Es un regalo. When I told the gringa the flowers were a gift, she understood. I think we all understood. The paisanita just discovered that gringos have souls. That they're human beings. But nothing stands between them and us. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show tonight is The Intimacy and Propaganda of Radio. You're listening to Bolivar's Idea, the final episode of Hello Americans, Orson Welles' radio series, which was sponsored by the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, headed up by Nelson Rockefeller. America's recognizing its unity of purpose. Sometimes slowly out of the necessity of crisis, more often through the recognition of a common destiny. Not the manifest destiny of Yankee imperialism and gringo superiority, but the destiny conceived by Bolivar, a great cultural and economic, political and intellectual partnership of equal nations. On the docks of Baltimore and New York, the longshoremen speak with surprise of a new and startling phenomenon. I don't get it, Pop. What is all this stuff? It's your factory. That's what it is, son. <laughs> you mean I'm lifting a whole blasted factory? That's right, son. A whole blasted factory. From conveyor belts to time clocks. Last month, the first of some 500 factories we weren't using for the war were shipped out of Baltimore for Latin America. That's the good neighbor policy. That's inter-American democracy. As my good friend Luis Quintanilla, the Mexican ambassador to the Soviet Union, sees it, not only the formal, theoretical, political democracy of our several constitutions, but the natural, tangible, economic democracy in our people's way of living. Pan-Americanism submits that being a nation is a dignity, a trust, a responsibility. That being a nation is a highly professional matter involving the highest professional ethics. Professional people don't have rivals or competitors, but colleagues. Each individual stands to gain by the good professional and ethical conduct of every other individual in the society. Colleagues understand the necessity of not resorting to brass knuckles as instruments of policy. Well, what do they settle their arguments with, then? What do you do if someone sues your friend? Beat his brains out? No. I get a lawyer or leave town. Nations can't leave town. So, in a manner of speaking, they get a lawyer. Several South American disputes have been settled by mediation, arbitration, and conciliation. That's only the beginning. Science and knowledge are breaking through the barriers of time and space. Only a short while ago, our president and commander-in-chief conferred with Winston Churchill in North Africa. Today, he's in Brazil. Men are learning to think in three dimensions. At long last, our understanding can encompass the words of Abraham Lincoln. The strongest tie of human sympathy, apart from the family relationship, is that uniting the workers of all nations 
tongues and kindred. Out of and beyond the concept of Pan-Americanism has grown the organized form of world democracy, the United Nations. Out of the meeting at Casablanca, we have renewed our solemn pledge to fight this war to ultimate total victory, and it will follow by the simple logic of historic elimination that when we've destroyed those who advocate a world order of slavery, poverty, and ignorance, we will be one step nearer the defeat of slavery, poverty, and ignorance themselves. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. That's another segment from Orson Welles' uh, uh, Bolivar's Idea. That's uh, his last episode of Hello Americans, broadcast in January of 1943. Uh, again, there's so much in there that's just chock full of, well, to me, this one was heavily propagandistic. <laughs> so let's, uh, maybe we can try to unwrap some of that. There's the good neighbor policy. This is, you know, uh, Roosevelt and Wilson before him, I think, uh, the good neighbor policy, which generally um, the U.S. is not such a good neighbor in the good neighbor policy, but <coughs> there is that. There also is um, professional ethics in there, which is interesting. It's kind of a, a right turn there, a kind of a, a interesting angle. We've got Lincoln as a Marxist in there also. So uh, who wants to start unraveling the propaganda? Well, I think James should. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this maybe isn't a direct answer to the places that you're pointing us to, mm -hmm. Doug, but one of the places that really struck me is when you know he was talking about how everybody's discovering that they are human beings mm -hmm. and that they have certain relationships that are in common. And he mentions three things, right? Cultural, economic, and political. Mm -hmm. Cultural being the first one, right? And I don't think that that's much of an accident, right? So as much as this is a political project that he's embarking on, this is also very much a cultural project that he's performing through the technologies afforded to him here, radio, right? So it, we've heard this earlier in the broadcast, right? When he talks about, you know, thank God for very various different things. He's thanking mm -hmm. God for Mark Twain, for instance, <laughs> other elements of culture. Mm -hmm. Culture obviously holds a very important place for him in terms of how we can forge these connections. And yeah, it was mostly culture he listed, actually, yeah. right? baseball and yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, beyond that, uh, what I thought was interesting was that this is, he, he sort of derides Yankee imperialism. Again, the good neighbor policy, unfortunately, is an imperialist project, which is interesting in and of itself, but, but says, well, let's not have manifest destiny, let's have Bolivar's idea. Um, it's, it's just an odd paradox of, of uh, maybe a propaganda generally, but of understanding yourself as always being in the right. And at this time, you had to stand that way, I would think. You had to stand against fascism. We talk about this in multiple programs, how you have to side with the Soviets at the time or the Russia at the time and side with certain things that end up being not the best things. But you have to pick a side here in this and, and sort of cherry picking the problems as we look back on it. Uh, maybe it's not very historical of me or not very uh, kind of me, but it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, that particular uh, segment though is so fascinating to me because there's so much of those things in there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, history is being massaged mm -hmm. a bit here oh, totally. into a shape right. that, you know, that Wells feels strongly about. Right. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, find these programs to be fake, you know, mm -hmm. or to be like deliberate, trying to pull the wool over people's eyes far from it. But um, I think it's also interesting then that he evokes professionalism. Mm -hmm. It's That's kind of an interesting thing to throw in. We don't usually think of a parallel, like a professional nation. Mm -mm. But I do think he's evoking a standard of, of, of uh, 
of politics, mm-hmm. kind of a, you know, n- and I think maybe even a little dig against, you know, dictators and things mm-hmm. like that in South America. We are professional nations now. Mm-hmm. We, need to, we need to be. We need to stand up against this mm-hmm. enemy. Well, also interesting there to note, and, and, and maybe I'm sticking too much to the politics, but the Mexican ambassador to the Soviet Union speaks in there as well. So you, you see, again, we're, we're sort mm-hmm. of international, not just uh, Pan-American, but international as well. Yes. It's pretty fascinating. Well, it's interesting that so much of this is aspirational, mm-hmm. right? I mean, oh, we good, say sure. that he's mm-hmm. massaging mm-hmm. history, that this is mm-hmm. propaganda, <laughs> but, you know, it, he's looking through an idealist's mm-hmm. lens, right? He is, you know, I think purposefully rejecting a lot of the complexities of, uh, you know, Western imperialism to make a larger point about what he sees as a very real possibility in this moment because we have so many people unifying against fascism, that these are the sides mm-hmm. that we've all been forced to take. So what if we can carry that forward and really work towards this, you know, ethos of responsibility, professionalism, create colleagues instead of creating, mm. you know, a legacy of imperialism. Right, right. Good. Well, let's actually listen then to the last portion of this uh, episode. Uh, again, it's uh, Bolivar's idea. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll caution everyone. It's a little bit strange, this last segment, I think. And you can tell me if I'm wrong when we get back. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, bias the radio audience. But uh, on some level, it's, 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 it again takes an interesting turn uh, in the program. So again, this is the ending, the close of Wells's Bolivar's idea. Over the Americas, over the continents and waters of the Western world, watches a spirit. I will not go back. Out of the mists of time the spirit came. In the beginning there was universal ooze, and monsters roamed the uncertain earth. Incredible reptiles haunted the world, and there was no man. Then they died. Great reptiles had their dim, their mighty day, and died. Then came the jungles. I was a bowed and hairy thing, monstrous and witless life, till something happened. I lifted myself on my knuckles, brute that I was, trying to stand, lifting myself on my wrists, pushing myself up on my knuckles. And this took a million years or more. But I stood up, I stood, and I walked erect. The world was hostile. The jungle was close, close at the back of the creature that dared to be more than creature. The jungle stood ready to take back its own. I will not go back. So he stands, this man spirit, watching over the continents, anxious of his destiny. He broods and waits waits for some proof that man can live in peace, proof that mankind can repudiate the doctrine of might and the brute rule by claw and fang, talon and beak. The spirit of man waits to learn if the jungle is leveled or if it still lives rankly, living and breathing and waiting to take back its own. Man may stand and look at the sun Or he may squat on his haunches again and howl at the moon. I am man. I have seen the summits to which men may lift themselves. I have survived Babylon, Nineveh, and Tyre. I have survived the flooding Nile, the rising and the falling of the continents. 
My flint and my bronze and my bones are scattered over the world throughout time. I have been kin to Plato, to Socrates, to Michelangelo, Galileo, Raphael, Shakespeare. Confucius has taught his simple art of goodness. Buddha has rested beneath his tree. Muhammad has journeyed to the mountain in my time. The Nazarene has mounted to Golgotha and higher. I am man. I have drawn nearer to it on recent wings. If I fly, I compute. I reason and have rules of logic. I sing, communicate. I speak and write my speeches upon space and void. I look up at the sun. I am man. I will not go back. This perhaps is our last chance. Here in the West, our chance is for a perfect and a bloodless victory. Pan-Americanism is a name for that victory. Not a Pan-Americanism of the alarmed moment, looking only for temporary safety in numbers. Not an expedient for the advantage of the big fellow nation or the imperialist. Not a cynical heads-I-win-tails-you-lose Pan-Americanism and the devil take the hindmost. But a union formed in the conviction that this is it. That the moment is urgent. And the wrong road leads back to the jungle. All the world looks to half the world for a way to peace. And we are that half of the world. We are charged with giving that we may receive. America, the mother of republics, may yield magnificently once more. Or go forever barren. I asked our vice president, Henry A. Wallace to write us a message for broadcasting. Here it is. The new democracy looks to the future, not to the past. It looks to the rich soil and bright sunshine of America for strength. It does not exclude the old world, but it will develop its own strength to help the old world. The spirit of man stands watch upon the western continents. I have come this far. I will not go back. So be it. We will see. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our time's up. The series is over. The Mercury Theater and the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs extend sincerest thanks to the Columbia Broadcasting System for making these programs possible. Your obedient servant thanks Lucian Marowak for his music and Vlad Gluskin for conducting it. Finally, he'd like to thank you for listening and for the interest you've shown in what we've had to talk about. We very much hope to be able to come back to the air again soon. Until then, we remain as always obediently yours. Hasta luego, hasta luego. Good night, Americans.
Again, that was Orson Welles. That was Bolivar's idea. It's the last episode of his radio series, Hello Americans. It was broadcast in January of 1943. It was sponsored by the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, headed by Nelson Rockefeller. Um, So before we talk about that strange piece there, the strange ending to that um, uh, sort of Conradian Heart of Darkness ending to to that program. Uh, We're going to need to go to a break, Uh, so um, let's do that now. Our music for the break uh, is another by Brazilian composer Hector Villalobos. Uh, This is Baquianas Brasilias uh, Aria Cantillena, performed by Aquarel Guitar Quartet. More wells before glass when Interchange returns on WFHB. for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976. Serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe, located in downtown Bloomington. More information available online at the-uptown.com. is Doug Storm. Welcome back to Interchange. Uh, we, uh, with me in the studio are Michelle Helms and James Gilmore. Uh, we're discussing wartime propaganda of Orson Welles, delivered through his radio features, uh, Hello Americans and Ceiling Unlimited. We just ended the episode Bolivar's Idea, uh, which was the final episode of Welles' series Hello Americans, which was produced for Nelson Rockefeller's Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs in 1943. This is smack dab in the middle of World War II, and it's clearly uh, an attempt to to persuade everyone that we're doing the right thing and that uh, we're trying to enlist uh, South America as well in, in doing the right things also uh, and fighting for the American spirit of man, apparently, spirit of uh, the world spirit of, I don't know, life. I don't. <laughs> so something happened in that last uh, bit that was over the top, right? Uh, and, and Michelle, would you like to comment on that? Well, it's my favorite part <laughs> because this is one of those places where 
somewhere. It's kind of like when uh, you're listening to War of the Worlds and suddenly the Martians come striding. I think it goes something like striding across the Hudson <laughs> as though it were a wading pool. And I've seen the movie, but they still couldn't do that, as that scene as well, mm. as you could do it in your mind when you heard those words. And here it is. You know, here we've been jumping around in these different moments and times and places, political speeches. We brought all kinds of historical characters on. And suddenly we're in the alluvial mud. We're crawling out. And, you know, we stand. And I admit it's, I, I call this, you know, I don't know what the aural equivalent of scenery chewing is. Mm-hmm. Microphone chewing. It definitely some of that going on here. That's and for Wells, though. I mean, this oh. is a, that's not a Wells microphone chewing. Oh, no. no he could yeah. he could do yeah. way better than that. But, yeah. you know, he was tired. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so we're getting this, you know, suddenly the symbolic, you know, spirit of man. And, of course, that stands for a lot of things. I'm sure we'll talk about uh, democracy and, and, and inter-Pan-Americanism. Um, There's kind of new relationship led by the U.S., of course. That comes out very clearly. But um, it is just something that, you know, you, you could not film. It's something that exists only in the mind and that we can conceptualize that way. And I just wanted to say, too, that, you know, if we think this is excessive, uh, you should listen to Norman Corwin, mm. um, you know, one of the other the other really great, I mean, probably best known radio feature producer of those years and something like uh, On a Note of Triumph. Mm. Uh, students today can barely listen to that because it is so over the top. But he really meant it. And it did its job at the time. It's not hard to go over the top in radio, really. It's, again, because it's such an intimate medium, it's, it, you go over in, in, in really a heartbeat, it seems like. It, it, and certainly, you know, tied very much to, again, that, you know, that, so this is what Wells has, that intimate voice, mm-hmm. which we will just, you know, will follow him anywhere. Mm-hmm. But then that uh, kaleidosonic ability to deploy it, mm-hmm. you know, so broadly. Just, I mean, I mean try to imagine somebody uh, even speaking like this in an auditorium. Right. Can't do it. Well, so, James, you think this is um, part of what um, that Wells's political project here starts with culture. Uh, mm-hmm. So we've heard the whole episode, and again, we heard there a kind of cult. The I Am Man was also Shakespeare. He was Raphael. He was mm-hmm. Michelangelo. He was most things uh, artistic. He's a man who communicates. He does well. communicate. Yeah. That's right. So, And that's what Wells does also, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's a kind of autobiography of Wells going on here also, maybe. Perhaps. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it is interesting. We've heard a number of political voices mm-hmm. across uh, this program, and he closes with Vice President Wallace, mm-hmm. right, who says, and uh, in, in his remarks delivered through Wells, the new democracy looks to the future. Mm-hmm. I know this is something that we talked about uh, in our last little moment of discussion, how this is very much a future-oriented mm-hmm. broadcast as much as it is kind of propagandistic for the moment, you know, we can imagine Wells seeing this as an opportunity to think about the project ahead. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's no accident that the, the man's spirit, right, mm-hmm. is, is something that is always looking forward and looking ahead and that this is really framed uh, as something that is not yet completed, mm-hmm. right? but that we have kind of a moment and an opportunity uh, to, to think about creating this mm-hmm. this new democracy, right? This yeah. is our last chance, he says. Yeah. And sadly, Henry Wallace will not be the vice president when <laughs> FDR uh, right. takes on his fourth term and dies, but Truman will, and we know what happens at that point. Not that it necessarily wouldn't have happened under Wallace, I have no mm-hmm. idea, but right. the, uh, the, the, the uh, bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is what comes in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe it was the last chance. <laughs> not not necessarily proof of peace that right. the man's no. spirit is looking the for. The man's spirit didn't bring peace, no. No. So let's uh, let's uh, actually move into Ceiling Unlimited. Uh, do you, uh, do we need to distinguish this in some way, Michelle, from Hello Americans? 
Sure. Um, it was done at about the same time. I mean, Wells mm-hmm. was co- was producing these shows simultaneously. This one was actually for um, Lockheed Vega, mm-hmm. a uh, manufacturer of aircraft being used in the war. So, And a lot of propaganda during World War II was done that way. Um, the government uh, gave a lot of credit, uh, so not literally, but some, some ways later, to companies who would sponsor um, propaganda. So uh, it's shorter, 15 minutes long. It starts out with a more direct... Um, uh, salute to people making airplanes, and mm-hmm. it tended to focus on flight, on on air, and we'll see that in this. And I don't know if I should go on and say something about the John Steinbeck story, but sure, um, go ahead. you know he he did mostly adaptations of literature and stories here. Not all. There's a, a wide variety. Um, he said he he commissioned this from Steinbeck. Apparently, I'm, I'm not. This isn't entirely clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then had to wait and use it in an episode that had another similarly short story. That one was kind of pedestrian by an author that nobody's heard of. I don't think we're going to be hearing that. No. We're just going to cut to the Steinbeck at the end. Right. Yeah. So this this one is actually uh, uh, just the Steinbeck. It's about uh, seven minutes long, maybe. And I did cut out the uh, Wells pretending to be an airman or a rigger. I think he, he is uh, at the beginning. He's pretending to be an Irish rigger, I believe. <laughs> so, and a, a little bit of scene chewing there as well. But uh, um, yeah, so let's go ahead and 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 do Ceiling Unlimited. This is with your wings, and again, it was broadcast also in January of 1943. Ceiling Unlimited. Hello, Americans. This is Orson Welles. This radio show is brought to you by the men and women of Lockheed and Vega. John Steinbeck wrote a story for this program. We think it's one of the best things we've ever had a chance to do on the air. It's a very short story, though. So short, we've had to wait for another story short enough to give us room for it. I'm very glad that we found time for it this week. You're going to hear it now. It's called With Your Wings. He knew most of all that he wanted to go home, that there was something at home he had to get. He didn't even know what it was. During the long, hard training, there hadn't been time to think of himself, nor to want anything. The ceremony at the end was unreal. He stood with 16 others, all of them rigid as cypress logs, and the silver wings were pinned to his blouse over his heart. There was a speech by the colonel. The half of his mind heard it. The other half was going home. He walked to his Model A Ford, got in, slammed the door. From the corners of his eyes, he could see the gold bars on his shoulders. The silver wings were heavy over his heart started the clattering open roadster, listened for a moment to the slapping pistons, and drove away in the sunny golden afternoon. The front wheels waggled loosely. He let the steering wheel slip back and forth in his hands. A training plane flew over and banked. He glanced up and knew that the pilot was not going home. Now he was frightened of his success. He tilted his cap a little, sat very straight behind the wheels, 
Then he turned off the highway into the rutted lane. The meadowlark flew ahead from fence post to fence post, singing his coming like a herald. The young cotton was strong and dark and clean in the fields. The porches of the cottages were crowded as he drove by. Children washed and dressed in their best and starchiest clothes, hair bursting with ribbons. The older people standing behind on the porches. At each house, they watched him pass. And then the families walked solemnly down the steps into the lane and followed him, like people going to church, men and women and children in their best clothes. He could see them in the sun-cracked rearview mirror, moving into the lane behind him. His own folks were standing on the porch waiting for him. His father in white shirt and black string tie and dark church clothes. His lean chin held high. His mother in her blue and white print dress, each hand in front of her, holding the other to keep it from escaping. His grown sister, pretty and breathless, her lips a little open. His young brother, with eyes so wide that his forehead wrinkled up. Second Lieutenant William Thatcher stopped his car and got out slowly and moved slowly toward the porch. And the gathering neighbors came up behind him. He'd planned how it would be. He'd treat the whole thing casually, as though it were nothing at all. He'd planned to say, Hello, Pa. Kiss his mother and sister. Pick up his little brother. Towsel his hair. But it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't nothing. It was something. He walked slowly toward the porch and stood looking up at his father. He could hear the rustle of the neighbors as they moved silently near, formed a half circle behind him. It was as though his own people were sitting in judgment on him. The sun was warm on the porch and on the roses against the porch, and the sun was hot on his golden shoulder bars could see them shine from the corners of his eyes. He'd thought to come home in triumph, and it wasn't that at all. He took off his cap with a gold eagle on it, held it in his hand. He saw his tall father lick his lips. And then his father said softly, Son, every black man in the world is going to fly with your wings. And then he knew. His breath caught sharply against his throat. He climbed the steps and went blindly past them and into the house and into the bedroom where he had grown up. Lieutenant William Thatcher lay down on the white bed. 
His heart was pounding. He could hear a little quiet murmur of voices in front of the house. He knew they were going to sing in a minute. And he knew now what he was to them. This program has come to you from the Lockheed and Vega Aircraft Corporations of Burbank, California. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Welcome back to Interchange. We were just listening to um, the um, With Your Wings. It's a, a story by John Steinbeck that was in Orson Welles' series Ceiling Unlimited. Also a, I guess, a war propaganda series produced in 1943, uh, just like our previous program, Bolivar's Idea. Uh, so there is the, um, I guess it's a twist, a twist story, right? The six-minute yep. twist story. Uh, Michelle, you want to talk about it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, that what Steinbeck is doing here is one of the ways that radio could deal interestingly with race. And race, particularly the role of African Americans in World War II, was, you know, a highly contentious subject. Um, just like in World War I, African Americans were heavily recruited uh, to serve in the war. And you might know the phrase, the double V, you know, they were fighting on the double V front for victory over the uh, Axis and victory uh, for civil rights at home. Um, and so um, as there were several artists that were drawn into using radio in a way uh, to express or to say something about race in America that hadn't been done before. You know, we had shows like Amos and Andy from the beginning, which mm -hmm. used radio's invisibility to allow two white men to play African-American characters in a, you know, demeaning minstrel dialect. And so here Steinbeck is creating the story where, you know, we are allowed seven minutes or six and a half to deeply identify with this family, with this town, with the voice, uh, in the, you know, the, the, the conscience of the uh, soldier speaking and to really uh, begin to grasp what he had done for the country. And then at the end, just as we've been, you know, we are those people. We are in in inhabiting their sensibility, it turns out that he's black, that he is, you know, a, a, the message comes across, you're an example to your race. Um, very similar to, oddly, just about the same time, um, there is a largely a lost but recently discovered, and I have to say, by me in the <laughs> Library of Congress, a uh, play by Langston Hughes mm. called The Man Who Went to War, where he does something similar. It's not the surprise ending, but it's simply taking a family of African-Americans and they're African-Americans singing spirituals, speaking in something of a dialect that was associated, putting them in London during the Blitz hmm. and just saying, we're, we're, in, we're English. We are English. And, you know, don't try to make distinctions between us. So that kind of interesting play with race right. through the power of radio. Hmm. Well, this is obviously, again, uh, uh, if, we, if we look at it as propaganda, then it's uh, you know, um, trying to, one, uh, create acceptance for African-Americans in the in the war, but also to uh, to encourage African-Americans that they can serve with a particular kind of dignity and nobility as well, uh, which I don't I don't want to be cynical about it, but, well, I could be. But, uh, you know, this is a difficult part, I, right? Again, John Steinbeck, a white man, Orson Welles, a white man, Nelson Rockefeller, a white man, and we're trying to get people to fight in a particular war. So this this is one of those interesting things where you you appreciate the progressive attitudes of Wells, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, James, uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about, uh, sure. too. Um, is there something, anything in particular in this in this per, uh, this story that strikes you uh, at all? Uh, I mean, I think you, 
you say it quite well when you talk about kind of the contradictions of mm-hmm. this, right? That this is a white man's voice reading a white man's words describing the black experience, right? And, you know, as aspirational as Orson Welles was, he does fall victim to the contradictions of his moment, mm-hmm. right? And he does kind of find himself having to make do with, with what's given to him. You know, he, he does not have, for instance, a, a, a black man come on and read mm-hmm. this story, right? Um, he uses the power of his own voice, and that's part of what makes the twist so interesting mm-hmm. is that we automatically assume that this is a white man because it is Orson Welles's voice, mm-hmm. right? But, uh, you know, he's somebody who cannot always evade kind of the messiness of the moment from which he was speaking, Right, right. Well, you, you as as you've written before too, uh, James, or maybe written in the future when your uh, this book w- uh, will come out. It's right? been written. It's oh, just, okay. you know, it hasn't come into the so, world. Yet. So, uh, uh, James, you've uh, written a chapter for your edited book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this chapter is called um, "Progressivism and the Struggles Against Racism and Anti-Semitism: mm-hmm. Wells's Correspondence." In 1946, mm-hmm. it focuses on several examples of Wells engaging uh, and being engaged by Jewish communities, humanitarian groups, and socio-political issues of equality in the post-World War II moment of 1946. And one thing you specify, or you one of one of your mm-hmm. examples, is his uh, uh, another radio program where he <laughs> highlights uh, um, a uh, um, a black veteran named Woodard. Uh, again, mm-hmm. another uh, military man. You want to tell tell us a little bit about about that? Sure. So this was uh, an instance that actually happened in South Carolina. There was a black veteran who was beaten by several white men when he got off of a bus, uh, beaten so badly that he was blinded. Mm. Uh, And the NAACP um, took an affidavit and sent it to Wells and said, please, uh, can, can you talk about this on your radio show that he was currently doing? And he took it up. He devoted many different broadcasts to it. Uh, trying to make it a national issue. Uh, He read the affidavit in full. It also provided his own thoughts on the matter, and it kind of became um, this really signature cause for him in the first part of 1946 and became, um, you know, very much an example of this progressivism that he had in this moment. And his, uh, you know, his ideas about racial racial equality, I should say, uh, had been a part of his work for a while, you know, and, and contradistinction to what we were just talking about you know my mind is going to his production of Macbeth mm-hmm. in the mid-1930s in New York uh, where which was performed by all African mm-hmm. um, performers right he actually you know had visions of working with the African-American community in New York to foster a real sense of black theater and it never uh, really happened for a number of different reasons but the, you know this is a moment where he become he kind of becomes known as someone who's fighting for racial equality and racial justice. Mm-hmm. And it's it's important to note, I think it's interesting too, it, as much as he tried, uh, maybe the, the fact of the matter, I think, uh, is that uh, the radio show was subsequently terminated uh, and before the officer was tried and acquitted for beating Woodard. So uh, possibly not maybe not very consequential. Uh, yeah, it, you know, it's really interesting. The The mythology of this incident has been that, you know, the officer was tried and convicted, but that actually didn't happen because uh, the show went off the air um, before the, the trial was finished. So a lot of people who study Wells in this moment uh, didn't know until relatively recently, it wasn't, you know, kind of popular knowledge mm. that the officer was actually acquitted. You know, it was certainly remarks that were controversial and that were not inconsequential for mm-hmm. Wells. You know, our collections here at Indiana University have a lot of the hate mail that he received mm. uh, from people who were aghast, 
you know, that he was defending mm-hmm. um, the rights of this man. Mm. So in this particular, uh, so uh, let's jump uh, jump back to the, the Steinbeck uh, and uh, maybe jump back as, uh, quickly to the style again. We have a very different Wells in that, in that piece, a very quiet, um, reflective, maybe uh, calm. The pace is really slow, maybe too slow for us uh, at, this, <laughs> at, at this day and age, maybe. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that's the case, but you really, uh, you really are forced to slow down and listen to every word. And again, this is uh, Wells drawing on his own strength as a, as a radio performer and a speaker. Uh, is there anything in particular we need to, to be aware of in, the, in that? Well, I just would say, um, yeah, you're right, it is very slow. I mean, he's obviously doing it for great dramatic effect. And again, you know, the power of the human voice, Wells's in particular, mm-hmm. um, comes out here. And I think, you know, what, what we might think about is uh, here's the kind of um, radio program devoted to dramatic reading. Uh, that was a big genre in the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. It quickly died out. It was soon to be no more. And pretty soon, you know, we have the rise of the action-adventure series, The Green Hornet. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we already have The Shadow, of course, but that yeah. genre in the 60s. Yeah. Um, meantime, where's the other place where this intimate voice is becoming more and more prominent is in the developing area of news reporting oh. through people like Edward R. Murrow, mm-hmm. who used his intimate voice to... Uh, recreate scenes of fighting that he couldn't go out and record. It was impossible. So then we begin to see, you know, after the war, that style rise to prominence. Uh, Then there's that period of forgetting when we in the U.S. forget about all these radio features. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Ira Glass's memoirs, to get to Ira Glass for Mm -hmm. a second. Good, yes, we um, should, since I titled the show that. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Right. Let's come back to Ira Glass. Not Mm -hmm. to, you know, focus on him, although he gets all the publicity, so he should get the blame. So um, he... um, he calls it storytelling, mm-hmm. but it is what, and he's reacting against what he calls the NPR style, <laughs> you know, which is the, you know, quickly edited, uh, you know, that kind of non-emotional uh, mm-hmm. uh, type of delivery. So I think we see Wells, Moreau, and then, you know, jumping ahead some decades to people like Ira Glass who are recreating that tradition. Rediscovering it, yeah. yeah. Uh, I did want to point out, I, and, and before, I didn't mean to jump off of Woodard so quickly, uh, James, but uh, mm-hmm. what I thought was important there is that, that Wells himself in his radio show uh, directly compared this to, you know, Nazi Germany, that mm-hmm. the South itself, South Carolina, this kind of thing is, a, is the same as Nazi Germany. It certainly yeah, he, speaks to our own moment currently. He uh, incorrectly names Aiken as mm-hmm. the town. It mm-hmm. did not, I forget the actual town where it happened. But he miscorrectly names Aiken, and he says Aiken is at risk of becoming the new Dachau, mm-hmm. uh, which you know is is a style that we've seen mirrored in all, all across what we've listened to this evening, right? The juxtaposition, mm-hmm. placing things together, right. you know, it, it runs the risk of making a false analogy, mm-hmm. right? But. It's an analogy that he wants to provoke, mm-hmm. right? Is, is it correct to say that this is, is a similar sort of thing? Uh, you know, he doesn't say, but he certainly thinks that it is. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a very interesting argumentative style uh, that, that he certainly was employing across all of his propaganda. Mm, great. Now, uh, we can discover many of these uh, these Wells uh, programs online now, right? That's right. Uh, many of them are out there on OTRCAT and on the Internet Archive and various places mm-hmm. like that. Not all. I'd like to see you know mm-hmm. more of them. Actually, we have a great collection here at Indiana, but... You have to come here to listen to yeah, us. That's right. Okay. Well, uh, we have to go. Our time is up. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful 90 minutes. Uh, thanks to Michelle Helms and James Gilmore for joining us this evening. Thank you, Doug. Thanks. 
Uh, Michelle Helms will deliver the James Nairmore Lecture titled Photography in Sound, the radio feature and its digital revival tomorrow, Wednesday, March 8th, in the Wells Library screening room at 2.30. It's open to the public. Thanks again to the Lilly Library for sharing these two programs from their Orson Welles radio collection. We'll close out with another composition by Villa Lobos from Sweet Populaire Brasilienne, Schottisch Choro, performed by Luciano Tortorelli. Next time on Interchange, Eleanor in Love and Politics. Susan Quinn Jones joins us to discuss, excuse me, Susan Quinn joins us to discuss her biography of love, Eleanor and Hick. Eleanor Roosevelt has recently been christened the First Lady of Gay, and in Quinn's new book, we're introduced to the woman who was likely Roosevelt's first and deepest love, the journalist and writer Lorena Hickok. We'll also talk to historian Jane Marcellus about Eleanor Roosevelt's first book, the 1933 It's Up to the Women, a work that Marcellus claims is a counterstatement to the propaganda project instigated by Edward Bernays for the presidential campaign of Franklin Roosevelt, rolled out in the February 1932 Ladies' Home Journal. What was up to the women? Well, patriotic shopping, of course. Eleanor in Love and Politics on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. Executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB.